Good morning. So have you ever grown to admire somebody's skills or accomplishments? You looked at something and thought about something and you thought, well, that's easy. Anybody can do it? Or is that just me who thinks that way all the time? See, I used to think golf was the silliest and easiest sport ever. I said, how, how could it be so difficult? The ball just sits there. It doesn't move. It doesn't do anything. Like, all you got to do is go up to hit it. And I would see Tiger Woods and all this stuff. I said, this is nothing. Anybody could do this. And then I started playing golf. It's not as easy as it looks. My brother started playing the guitar, and I thought, well, if he can do it, I mean, <laughs> anybody can do it. So I bought me a bass guitar. And I was terrible. My roommates absolutely hated the fact that I was trying to play the bass guitar. All I knew was the guitar chords for Smoke on the Water. That's all I would play over and over again at our house. I used to think a pastor was the simplest job in the entire world. I thought, all you do is read and study the Bible. And then you talk for 30 minutes. I mean, how hard could that possibly be? And then I became one. Interesting fact, I went back and apologized to some of my pastors. I'm not joking, I really did that. See, what I'm learning in life, and you probably already know this, is things aren't always as easy as they seem. What I found out, you probably already know, is the vast majority of time, things don't just happen. All right, the vast majority of times, things don't just happen, it's usually the result of a lot of time and a lot of effort. All right, people don't just accidentally get good at things. Tiger Woods was a great golfer because he practiced for eight hours a day. My brother was a good at the guitar. For one, he wasn't tone deaf. For two, he practiced all the time. And, and maybe you've looked at a, a, a thing and said, hey, this can't be that bad, and you tried it. Maybe you tried to do home improvement. When we bought our first house, we gutted it, and then I decided to caulk. I said, well, it can't be that hard. My wife has made a rule. I am never allowed to caulk in our house again. It was everywhere. Maybe you watched that cooking show. Maybe you thought your boss's job was really easy, then you started doing it and you found out it wasn't nearly as it looked. I mean, this is common stuff. I'm just trying to make sure we're on the same page this morning. The vast majority of time, things don't just happen. It's usually the result of a lot of time and effort. Are you with me? Simply like, Brian, this is very, very easy. Yes, good. You see, that also answers our question to some of the things we see on the news. Some of the things we see in our family. You know when you watch the news or you see those stories and you just think, how could somebody? How could they let it go so far? I mean, your stomach just churns when you think about what your family member did, what your best friend did. So how did they end up there? How did they do something like that? I mean, what happened? You see, it's the same principle applied. The vast majority of times, people don't just decide to wake up one morning and do things. It's usually the result of a lot of time and effort. Just like when we practice a skill, hobby, or sport, we get better and better. We all can go down these paths that get worse and worse. We just get better at these things. You see, and I bet all of them who wind out these paths that they wish they hadn't taken, I bet all of them think, well, I could control it. I can handle it. Things won't get that bad in my life. But then they do. And the topic we're going to talk about today is very, very important. And you have to understand it comes from a place of brokenness. It, it comes from a place of terrible things I did in my past that still haunt me. It comes from a place of watching loved ones, family members, friends struggle with addictions. 
die very premature, make a mess out of their lives, and go down these paths that are just extremely destructive. And it hurts, whether it's you or whether you watch somebody go down it, I don't want you and I don't want your family or anyone you know to go down those paths. So up front today, what I want you to do is I want you to get rid of sin. I want you to stop dabbling in it, stop playing in it. Those areas in your life that you're close to the line that you think you can control, that you're like, hey, it's not gonna get that bad. Hey, I got this under control. Hey, it's never gonna happen to me. I want you to get rid of it. Stop it. Walk away from it. Protect yourself from it. And maybe you're like me and you think you're wise enough, you're smart enough, and hey, it'll, it'll never happen to me. But what I want to show you this morning is the wisest, well, the second wisest man to ever walk this planet couldn't control sin, couldn't tame it, and it got out of control pretty bad in his life. You see, chances are if you've been in church for a while, you've heard of King Solomon. He's known for being the wisest person in the Bible, of course, outside of whom? Right, Jesus, 80% of the time, Jesus is the answer in church, okay? He's King David's son who has everything he needs to be successful. He's famous, he wrote scriptures, he built the temple. I mean, he did amazing feats. But what we usually don't learn about in Sunday school class, you probably will today here, but a lot of times we don't learn that he ended up ruining the entire nation of Jerusalem, While we think of his great accomplishments, the reality is his legacy is absolutely terrible. He played with sin, he dabbled in sin, he thought he had it under control, but it turns out he didn't. And if you read his story in 1 Kings, the author is so amazing, he's so interesting. I mean, I've struggled with this story all week, over and over again, because there's little nuances in the story that's easy to miss. But if we pick up on them, we see the author's trying to teach us, hey, what ends up happening in Solomon's life, it didn't come out of nowhere. Here's how it starts. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to 1 Kings chapter 3. This is right after Solomon becomes the king. This kind of little power struggle goes away, and he is now the king of Israel. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be back here on the screen. It says this, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Now look, it's easy to blow right by this, but Egypt? It wasn't long ago that Israel was enslaved by whom? Egypt? Yeah, they were under this. What is, why is Solomon making an alliance with Egypt? I mean, can't God protect him? Can't God take care of it? Hadn't God done that in the past? I mean, he's doing the political thing. He's making an ally with a, an, a, another world power. But here's the thing about this. The law doesn't specifically say that Solomon can't marry an Egyptian, all right? In Deuteronomy 7, it lists out different people the Israelites cannot marry. It lists a whole bunch of nations, the ones surrounding, but it doesn't specifically say Egypt. So it's like, well, technically, I'm good, right? The Bible doesn't say it, So I'm good, but the reason why Deuteronomy 7 for them, uh, for the Israelites not to intermarry with other nations is because of this. It says, don't intermarry with different faith groups. Don't intermarry with people who can lead you astray. 
So while Egypt wasn't technically on the list, and we do find out later, she actually didn't worship their God. She worshiped from a different faith group. So you see Solomon making an alliance, you know, really compromising in this area of marriage, but it wasn't technically wrong. You ever done that with the Bible? What well, doesn't say? He's playing with this thing. Verse two it says, The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not been built in the name of the Lord. Now, here's the deal Israel was not really supposed to make sacrifices at these high places. High places were pagan worship sites, and when they were to take over the land, they were supposed to get rid of these things. Pagans would sacrifice, you know, sometimes even children at these high places. They were little worship sites all over the country. Now, what's very strange is there's nuances in the Bible, and we don't know everything that happens. We do our best to learn, but most of the time, high places are not regarded as a good thing, but sometimes it seems like it's okay. We see Samuel making sacrifices there, and it's not put in a bad light. So high places are one of these like iffy things in Scripture. They're, they're really not supposed to do it, but sometimes it seems to be okay. There's these nuances running through here. There's these tension like, well, is it right or is it wrong? Well, they clarify for us in verse 3. It says, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except... That he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. See, the author of Kings does not like these high places at all. And, and so it's like it's Solomon's getting it right. He's doing some good things, but, but he's not. It's like he's almost there, but kind of compromising, playing with some things. This says this, verse four, says the king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices for that was the most important high place and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Now here's the thing, this is seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Can you imagine taking a thousand sacrifices with you seven miles away? So we go seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Second Chronicles tells us he had an entourage with him. I mean, he had a big group of people with him. And chances are he's doing this for political reasons. You see, Second Chronicles tells us this is where Moses left the, the tent. This is where the, um, the table was left. So he's going to this place that has some significance. But the thing is, the Ark and the Covenant is back in Jerusalem. This weird thing happened. Like, Solomon, you're almost getting it right. What are you doing? He goes to this place. He offers these sacrifices. And lo and behold, God chooses to work through this imperfect situation. And this is where Solomon's praying. God shows up, says, hey, I'm going to bless you. What do you want? And Solomon asks for what? Wisdom, right? He says wisdom. And God is impressed with it. God works with that and says, hey, because you've asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you so many other things. And he does. He blesses Solomon's life. He has wealth more than anybody else, and it seems like everything is going good for him. But check this out, and this verse just throws you off, because verse 15, it says this. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings. Hold on, didn't he just do that? Oh, oh but now he goes to the right place. Now he goes in front of the ark, he goes to Jerusalem, he offers sacrifice, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings. Then he had a great festival, uh, excuse me, great feast for all his court. 
So now he leaves this place, he gets his wisdom, he goes to the correct place, he offers these sacrifices, but one scholar points out there's this weird nuance here too, because only the priests are supposed to go before the ark. And we see in Chronicles that David does this, but David changes his garments, the priests were there, but it doesn't say these things about Solomon. The author's showing us there's these things like Solomon's almost getting it right. He's dabbling and playing in these gray areas that he really shouldn't be playing in. So the author kind of leaves this open and leaves us guessing, what's going on here? This is strange. This is different. See, right from the start, we see that Solomon is marrying somebody for his career. That's what it's about for the Egyptian marriages. We see him offering sacrifices he really shouldn't be offering him. But if anybody, right, like, I mean, the wisest person ever is not going to let these things get out of control, right? Just because he dabbles with his first marriage doesn't mean it's going to get bad. Just because he dabbles in offering sacrifices at the wrong place, it doesn't mean it's really going to get bad. I mean, he's the wisest person ever lived. Surely he has this under control. And then Solomon ends up doing some great things. Listen, he wrote the wisdom sections of the Bible. He was a great political leader, very diplomatic. He built an amazing economy. He led people to have great sacrifices to God. He met with famous people. He built the temple. He built a palace. By the way, you know his palace was four times the size of the temple. Anybody else pick that up? When you build a house four times bigger than God's house, there's a problem. He had a fleet of trading ships. Check this out. He had apes and baboons. Now, I got to be honest. If I was rich, I would probably buy apes and baboons. I don't know why, but I've always wanted a little monkey. It's just something inside me. So I get this. Like, it tells us that they would bring every couple years apes. Anybody else would, would do this? Well, how about if your wealth was an income of 25 tons of gold? That's what his wealth was. Would you buy some ape and baboons there? You're like, heck yeah, I'll buy a whole zoo. I'm good. He was loaded. In fact, it tells us that silver had no value in Solomon's kingdom. Can you believe that? You get silver bars like, throw it away. It's worthless. I don't need that. Like this was an amazing economy. Pretty much, he's living the American dream. That's a sermon for a different day, by the way. It's impressive. It looks like he has it all right. Then go to the end of his life. 1 Kings 11. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. You see, he started marrying for political reasons and he never stopped. He started marrying these interfaith groups and it got out of control. In fact, Deuteronomy 17, 17 has a specific verse about the kings. It says this, he must not take many wives or they will turn his heart away. Now, just to let you know up front, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't exactly know what the word many means, but help me out if you think this means many wives. Verse 30. He had 700 wives. You think, that, you think that works for many? Yeah, I think that covers it. Like, I'm, I'm not a scholar, but I'm pretty sure that covers it. And that wasn't enough. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Okay, can you imagine 700 mother-in-laws? 
I know, like 25 tons of gold. That's how he took care of that, I guess, okay? And his wives led him astray. You see, they weren't converted. It's not like, oh, we did these things. He was marrying people in different faiths. He's compromising. And he ends up following and worshiping other gods. And here's the thing with this. Idolatry and worshiping other gods is one of those things God never gives a pass for. It's never a gray area. He's never okay on it. He comes down extremely hard. And what we're going to read last week, Solomon's kingdom ends up getting torn in two. What Solomon does here, this is so important. The kingdom never recovers till this day. What he does splits it and it never comes back together. Because of his actions, all of his work was ruined. It was pointless. You see, from the beginning of his life, we see him dabbling. We see him playing. What's not going to get bad? I got this under control. And then it becomes full-blown apostasy, but it didn't happen overnight. It took time. And this was the richest, wisest man most powerful man on the planet at his time. And I guarantee you his goal wasn't to destroy everything his father and him worked for. But he did. You see, we can't tame sin. We'll never have it under control. And, and if you're like me, you like to beat the odds. You think, hold on, well, I know that's what happens to other people, but not me. I got this. Watch. I, I mean, I, I, can, I can overcome it. But chances are you won't. Chances are your story's gonna read very similar to other people's story who's dabbled and played with the same things because we can't tame it. And luckily for us, I mean, the great thing about scriptures is it tells us exactly what happened. Verse four says this. It says, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his David, his father, had been. What do you think the problem was? It's highlighted. The heart. The author is intentionally teaching us something here. He's repeating himself. He said, remember, remember Saul. Saul wouldn't take responsibility for his actions. God said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm seeking a person who is after his what? Heart. Come David. David was a man after God's own heart. And now we see Solomon isn't either. His heart is divided. He's chasing things of the world. He's chasing his career. He's, I mean, that's really, that's what I, another sermon I wanted to preach today on that. That's what he's focused on. This has to be a warning. This is the same thing that Jesus is teaching. Jesus is famous saying, he says, you can't serve two what? Masters. And see, where the Old Testament is talking about the heart, it's much more than the organ. One scholar says, it's the basic orientation of a person embracing desires, emotions, and attitude. He's saying Solomon's entire being wasn't dedicated to the Lord. And the sad thing about Solomon is we never know if he repented. We're never known. I mean, I hope and pray that he did, but we have no idea. But what we do know is he at least knew the folly of his ways or perhaps we see he wrote some stuff later in life that leads us to think maybe he did repent. 
Because he writes in Proverbs 4.23, this is the New Living Translation for you. He says, guard your heart above all else. Like, the thing above things, the most important thing, above anything else you protect, protect what's on the inside. Your heart, your emotions, all that makes it up. Remember all that stuff we talked about? Protect it because it determines the course of your life. You see, Solomon just simply lived an unguarded life. He had allowed things to creep in. He had allowed things, he dabbled in things. He had allowed things to influence him away from God and it led him towards destruction. And you already know this, but all paths lead to somewhere. One scholar says, Solomon's sin may have begun small. It may have developed in stages over time. However it started, however it was fueled, it began a national disintegration. And that was at times slowed, but never completely halted. It just kept going and going. And since none of us want that to be our story, None of us want things to get out of control. None of us want our kids to go, why? What do we do? Well, we must intentionally guard our heart. We gotta be intentional about guarding our heart. We must protect ourselves from the wrong influences. You must protect yourself from potential compromises. And luckily for us, man, I'm telling you, scripture's really good. It tells us how. Psalms 119, verse 11 says this. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Now, two things. One, young person doesn't mean it's not for older people. The idea of wisdom is you give it to people when they're young to set them up for what? Success early. Like, if I can set them up for success when they're young, hopefully they won't make the same mistakes I've made. That's what we do with our kids, right, grandkids? So that's the idea. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By the way, when we hear this word, we think of sexual. That's not what it means. It's moral, but it would include sexual. It's all of it. Like, how can we stay pure? How can we stay on the right track? He says, by living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart and do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So if we take this in reverse order, he says this, excuse me, he says we we hide God's word in our heart. Now remember, our heart is much more than just our organ. It's our emotions, it's our will, it's our attitudes. It's everything that makes us us. And so he continues to teach us then how he hides God's word in his heart. Because we're like, all right, what does that mean? I just read it, Brian? Like, is this another sermon just to read the Bible? No, it goes deeper than that. Like, we're gonna continue to grow and really get into it. So it's not just reading it, it's different. Look at how he treats God's word. So he says, hey, I hide your uh, your word in my heart. And then he says, here's what it looks like. Verse 13, he says this. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. So he verbally recites God's word. He talks about it's on his lips. He says, I rejoice in following your statues. Listen to this. As one who rejoices in great riches. Here's the picture. He's as happy about following God's word as he is about winning the lottery. Is that your attitude? You're like, man, I get to forgive someone today. Yes. Who I get to give. I am so excited. Whoo. 
You're like, well, well, no. I mean, look at, remember, it's not just an intellectual thing. It's an emotional thing. It's everything. He's like, no, when I get to do what you've asked me to do, like I get excited about it. He says, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. And this is what I love. He doesn't just read it to know it, to recite it. He meditates and thinks about how it can impact every area of his life. He's like, how does this consider my work? I consider my walk. I consider my drive. I mean, if we just allow God's word to affect our driving, then we could have church bumper stickers. But until then, we will not. Right? It's like, how can this affect all areas of my life? And then he says this, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Listen, he delights in the scriptures. If you don't learn anything else from me, just learn this one thing. Please have a positive attitude when you read God's word. Too often we come to it with guilt and shame and we feel like mm, it's just gonna tell me what I'm not doing right. Change your attitude. Delight in it. Get excited like God has chosen to speak to us. God has chosen to talk to me. Like, Listen, you're saved by grace. Relish that and go to God's word and be like, man, I get to learn on how to apply a section of scripture today. Like I'm not gonna get it all right, but today I can try one thing. Delight that he's chosen to reveal himself to us. If we would just change our attitude and get excited, it would make all the difference in your spiritual life. So how does he hide God's word in his heart? Well, by rejoicing in it, by delighting in it, by reciting it. He's engaging his entire person, his emotions, his intellect, his desires, everything according to God's word. That's pretty deep, isn't it? It's not like, oh, I just know. Uh-uh. It affects all of him. So we hide God's word in the heart, but it also says to seek God which means we seek God. Again, I'm gonna repeat myself so you get it. We seek God with our intellect, with our emotions, with our attitude, with our desires, meaning we confront how we feel with God's word. We confront our feelings with the direction of scripture. Just because we feel certain ways doesn't mean it's right, and you know this. But so it's not just engaging some things, it's engaging all things with scripture. It means we live according to it. So we hide it, we engage our entire being, and then we live according to it, meaning we don't compromise. We don't look for ways out. We don't try to make our situation and our kids' situations fit scripture. We allow scripture to dictate those things. And it will direct, the writer tells us, our path towards purity. That's our intellect, our emotions, our attitudes. And so here's the thing. This isn't just, hey, read the Bible. It's deeper than that. I please hope you hear this. We read the Bible so it can guard our hearts. Guarding our hearts comes from the instruction of scriptures to infect our entire lives. We use it to protect ourselves, to set up things around ourselves. So we can see danger. We can see the warning signs. We know when we're starting down a path we shouldn't even be on. Meaning we use scripture to be proactive in our life, not just reactive. 
What's the difference? Well, I don't wait till I've made a mess and then like, God, all right, I need you to fix this. Hold on. Play Russian roulette, right? We flip. We don't wait until we've made a mess. We read scripture to prevent us from making that mess. It doesn't mean we're gonna get it right. It doesn't mean we're not gonna make a mess. Listen, come talk to me. I'll tell you all mine. I got a ton. But it always comes from not paying attention to something in here. So the idea is we don't just read it. It's to guard us. It's to protect us, to guide and guard us from danger. This is where we leave the theoretical alone. The, the, theory is fun. Like, let's just think about it. Let's just theologize. Like, just keep it up here. But when it comes here, in the application side, it gets hard. It gets rough and tough. See, Solomon says, guard your heart. Above all else, it determines the course of your life. So we use scripture to guard ourselves and protect us from influences, the things that speak into our lives that determine the course of our lives. And for you, I mean, what kind of life do you want? For you, what do you want your legacy to be? You see, guarding implies that there's threats to all aspects. Guarding implies that we have to be proactive, not reactive. We don't guard after there's a mess. We guard before there is a mess. And guarding protects what's important. So what's important to you? What's valuable to you? Where are you dabbling and playing with sin? What's so important that you need to protect? And please know this isn't a sermon for you. This is a sermon for me that I'm just happy to talking to all of you about. This has rocked me this week. You see, the course of our life is directed by what's inside. If we don't protect it, we'll end up wandering and going down paths like Solomon did. You see, Solomon lived unguarded in his career, his marriage, and his spiritual life. Are those things that might affect us? He lived unguarded. Just let him go for it. Let let those things dictate his life, these other things. We would be wise to set up guards for these. You see, Solomon compromised God's word because of his career at the end of the day. But what's so crazy about that is his career was given to him by the Lord. All he had to do is rest and trust. We think, oh, if I turn that over to God, he's gonna ruin my career. No, chances are he'll elevate it. Solomon compromised on a biblical view of marriage. I mean, a thousand women, that is just not even close to being right. His spiritual life. So let me ask you, do you guard yourself from the demands of your career? Do you guard your family? Do you guard your marriage? I, I just felt like I needed to say this this morning. Do you know your kids are not important in your marriage? Your marriage is more important than your kids. And do you need to guard your worship with God? Do you protect that time? I mean, there's so many different areas, and I want the Lord to speak to you on what you need to guard. I just want to give you a practical example for my life. It has nothing to do with any of those three things because they're way too personal for me just to share them to you guys, okay? One thing I guard myself from is Facebook. Not a joke. I really do. Now, here's why. 
I made a decision a long time ago that if something doesn't add value to my life, I'm not gonna do it. Now, I'm not perfect at this, but I strive for it. So one thing I guard against is Facebook because here's the deal. It's not a tackle social media. If you have it and you love it, I'm excited for you. But for me, here's what I found. It never added value to my life, ever. It, it never helped me. It never made me feel better. It never brought me closer to the Lord. It, it just never did. And yes, I know I could keep in contact with those couple of people. All right, that, we all say that, right? Well, I, like, I know that's true. And for some of you, that's very true. I'm excited for you. For me, I have to I guard myself from the negativity. I guard myself from time wasting. I guard myself from pointless information. Can we be honest? A lot of that stuff's pointless. Look, and I can only hold so much up here. All right, I, I, I gotta protect myself. And, and while that's not popular today, and while I know and I get convicted because I'm like, well, pastors are on social media, maybe I could reach people. What I know though is I'm doing it to protect myself. I know it has a negative effect on my emotions. It can ruin my entire day. That ever done that to you? I'll go home and be mad at my kids because of something somebody said on Facebook. I mean, that's just the truth. People are mean. Did y'all know that? And so I'm like, look, I can't even go there. I'm gonna yell at my kids for nothing. And maybe one day I'll be mature enough to handle it, but right now I'm just telling you I can't. So I protect myself from it. That's just one example. There are so many. Because the vast majority of, uh, majority of times, things don't just happen. They're the result of the paths we choose. And so we gotta guard, we gotta protect ourselves. The psalmist tells us we hide God's word in our heart to do this. We seek God in all areas. That means nothing's off limit, which is scary. And we don't compromise. We live according to his word. See, right from the start, Solomon had this exception. You saw that, I'm sure. It said he followed the instructions given by his father, except. Not for you. If somebody was writing a story of your life, what would the except? Look at this. It says, your name here shows the love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given to them by King Jesus, except, what's that for you? If someone's writing a story about your life, what would the except be? See, here's the beauty of this sermon while we're doing it with communion, because in a minute we're going to go to the Lord's table. The amazing thing is, no matter what path you're on, no matter what that accept is, you can be forgiven and redeemed and set free. You don't have to continue down the path. You don't have to continue charting that course. What we learn is that Solomon, we're never told, turns. See, the table reminds us that forgiveness, redemption... Being set free is all offered because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's not that, oh, I made these mistakes and God's not gonna forgive me. No, we're saved by grace. But we can turn from things before they get out of control, before they get bad. So if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I just want you to know he wants to chart a new path for you. He's given you the ability to be born again, to be create and chart a new course in life. If you've never done that, forgiveness is offered, redemption is offered, and you know 
You feel it, what's going on right here. Don't ignore that. If you're a follower of Jesus, what's holding you back? Where are you dabbling in sin? For me, you, this isn't for everybody. Maybe some of you are good. I'm talking to those of you who, who know that you may be dabbling in some things you shouldn't be. Remember, I preached to myself first, right? Or maybe, maybe you don't have guards put up. Maybe you're just unguarded. You just go with the flow, hoping it'll work out. Maybe it will. My experience is it doesn't. Maybe it will for you. But all paths lead somewhere. And so before we come to the table today, I'm gonna ask the praise team to come up and I just ask you to get your heart right with God. I just ask you to pray. The Bible tells us to, to investigate, to look at our lives before we come because here's why this isn't cheap grace. Grace is free, grace is given, but it cost somebody something. What did grace cost? The blood of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to the table, they got an amazing song playing. Tommy's gonna sing, and excuse me, praise team's gonna sing about just amazing grace. And so for you, maybe you need to pray. Maybe for you, you need to think about how to guard your heart. Maybe for you, you just need to praise God, open your heart up into worship, whatever it is, we just ask you to do that before you come to the table. And so I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna sing in the middle of the song. We're gonna open it up for you to come take communion. So just know that's how the process is going. But before you leave, and maybe your prayer today is just simply, Lord, show me. Lord, I don't like anything he said today. It bothered me. It's aggravating. In fact, I don't like Brian at all. You know what? I don't, I don't even know about this church. I, if you're there, I, we all have been there. The Bible can mess us all up. But maybe you go, but maybe he's right. Maybe there's something to this. Show me, Lord. Show me if there's something that I need to turn over to you. Watch what happens. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we could come together. And God, we see a, a great man who did a, had an amazing career, who had more money than we'll ever had, who did more things than we'll ever do, who ran a nation. And we learn that, Lord, these earthly things aren't the measures of success. It's not about our careers. It's about our relationship with you. What we learn is that you'll give us those things if we seek you first, but Lord, we struggle. It's hard. Father, we live unguarded lives. We have friends. We have computers. These things are hard to handle. They're hard to deal with. We, God, we just need you to show us, help us, put the right people on our path to help us and mentor us. God, show us where we need to turn. Show us where we need to guard. Lord, we just want to live lives that honor and glorify you. We thank you for the grace and forgiveness that's offered through Jesus Christ. We know we can leave all that here today, walk out refreshed and renewed. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.